Good afternoon. I think it's good that we get started. Um, we only have 45 minutes together and we'll be barely able to scratch the surface of this case um, because as you can imagine there's a lot going on in the case. And then I also have to take a minute or two to say to you that my name is Ann Coughlin. I'm a professor here at UVA Law School. I teach criminal law, criminal procedure, feminist theory, law and public service, and law and humanities courses. So I have a kind of a broad portfolio of interests. Um, we are absolutely delighted to have all of you here today. You are the reason why we exist as an institution, and you're the reason why we exist as such a fine institution. I know that each of you has many, many options things that you could be doing with the next three years, not to mention the next 45 minutes. Um, and we're just thrilled to know that we are one of the options you're considering. Um, so it's a really terrific day for us. Um, if you have questions about the law school, I hope that you'll feel free to get in touch with me after you leave. If there's anything that I can be helpful with, I'll try to do that. Um, the most important piece of advice that I would give on that front now is to be sure that you find a community where you think you're going to thrive. Um, uh, and that's going to be very different for different people. For some of you, a uh, uh, small uh, college town, Charlottesville, Virginia, will be a fantastic place um, and you'll feel comfortable here and happy. Others may need to look at other kinds of spaces and our objective is to help you make the best decision for you because that's really what we want. Um, the law world's a small world and so the people that you're meeting today you will run into again and again and again no matter where you decide to go to law school. Um, so I just want to welcome you and, and say congratulations. I, I think that you are going to find the law to be a splendid profession. Um, certainly there's no time better in the history that I've known of uh, to be going to law school and to be studying this um, interesting uh, body of discourse, um, words that allegedly make a big difference in the world, and Lord knows we need you. Um, the future is in your hands. So welcome and please get in touch with me either in the, you know, after this or, or in the coming days. So I chose a case, uh, Lawrence versus Texas, which by now probably looks a little bit long in the tooth to all of you. But I certainly want to remind you that what seems long in the tooth to you is very, very recent in terms of uh, jurisprudence, both constitutional jurisprudence and criminal law jurisprudence. So Lawrence is actually quite a recent development. Um, it's also a really terrific case because it's a crossover case. It is both a con law case and a criminal law case. And we probably, surely won't be able to get to all of the issues um, that the case raises. But one of the reasons I like the case as a criminal law professor is that it provides an incredible vehicle to think about the question of what do and should we punish? And that's typically a policy question that's left to legislators. So many of you will get involved with legislators. But in the law school setting, we typically just take it for granted that we have statutes called penal codes. And the legislators call the shots about what goes into those statutes as a policy matter. And it's a really big deal, the question of what do we criminalize? What do we punish? Um, what do we stigmatize? Uh, for what do we incarcerate? 
And it's rare to have a judicial opinion on this subject. Judges very rarely get involved in that debate um, because of separation of powers uh, arguments. So it's a fascinating case from the crim law perspective. And then also, as I'm sure you've remarked, since I'm also sure you've all read the case, um, it's a really interesting constitutional law case because you see the judges struggling with these basic questions. What does this language mean? And they have very different methodologies for deciding what that language means. And so that's the other thing that I think is a wonderful place for you to start, um, to be thinking about what kinds of constitutional methodologies are available, um, to absorb them as a descriptive matter. And then as you settle into your careers, and become judges yourselves, you'll have the opportunity to decide as a normative matter um, which of these methodologies is, is for you. So that's what I'll say. Um, so Lawrence versus Texas. Um, one thing that's fascinating to me when I read the case, I don't know if this is your reaction, but when I read the case, it reminds me of how I felt when I was sitting where you're sitting and where you're going to be sitting in the fall. And that is you pick up a text, a case, and you realize that there's a conversation that's been going on for a really long time, decades, uh, maybe centuries. And the judges are, in the opinion, of course, continuing that conversation, extending it, refining it, developing nuances. And they don't bother to tell you anything about what it is that's going on in the room. You have to play catch up. And one of the things that's really fun about Lawrence versus Texas is that Justice Kennedy's opinion for the majority doesn't even cite or quote for you the constitutional text that they are expounding. It's only until you get to Justice Scalia that you get a glimpse of, oh, here's the constitutional language that's at stake in this case. And so one of the things that I wanted to say to you, if you had that feeling of unfamiliarity, uh, welcome to our world. Um, and <laughs> it, you're going to spend the rest of your career working with those kinds of problems and those kinds of issues. Because one of the great things is that you're constantly being exposed to new um, areas, having the chance to learn about new bodies of doctrine, new areas of jurisprudence. And you'll have to get caught up again on vocabulary. I don't know if you noticed when you read the case, there's bunches of words in it that I wouldn't have known when I was a law student. De novo, nolo contendere, stare decisis, in bank court, you know, all of this stuff. Like, what does this mean? Not to mention the more difficult questions. What is substantive due process? What does that mean? That's a question that is extremely complicated. So anyway. It's, it's a great case. It's a Supreme Court case. It shows you the kind of case that you'll be studying in law school, the kind of case that we hope that many of you will participate in litigating um, down the road in some uh, fashion. But the other thing that's really wonderful about the case is it brings home to you the job that lawyers do every day, which is to figure out what does this language mean, right? What do these words mean? And how do they apply to the given case, the set of facts, the factual narratives or stories that 
will be developed, right? And so that's going to come up in contracts. It's going to come up in wills and trusts. It's going to come up in a whole range of, obviously, corporate transactions. You're going to have documents. And you're going to need to be figuring out, what on earth does this language mean? Um, reading statutes of all kinds. So this basic question, what do the words mean, is the same job that you're seeing here being carried out by the Supreme Court justices. So the 14th Amendment, part of the Reconstruction Amendments after the Civil War, 1868, it turns out that in fact there are two separate clauses of the 14th Amendment that are implicated by the Bowers decision. The first, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's the so-called due process clause. And then next is, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And of course, that's the equal protection clause. And so as we see this case, it ends up, it gets teed up in a fairly complex way. The petitioners are arguing that there are two separate constitutional violations. When they were prosecuted and convicted for this sodomy offense, they were denied the right to the equal protection of the laws, and they also were denied their due process rights. So you have both of these, these provisions at stake. Um, and as I said, the court just starts talking about them as if, of course, everyone knows what they're talking about, when in fact it, it, it takes a fair amount of study to figure all that out. Um, so what I'm going to do is jump around in the opinion, um, which is something that you too will be doing very soon. Um, you're going to read opinions, certainly by the time you're in practice. Don't, don't, don't worry about anything that I say right now for law school purposes. Um, but by the time you're in practice and you're actually working on a problem for a client, you will read the relevant opinions many, many times. And you'll read them out of order. And you'll read them you know, every which way. And so what I want to do is to jump around in these opinions as a way of sort of just elucidating what the issues are. Um, so the first thing, of course, to remark, every case is going to have a little description of the so-called facts. Um, these are the stories that the lawyers tell at the trial, and that by the time you get into an appellate opinion, they're settled. You know, they're pretty much written in stone. You don't have the opportunity, except in very rare circumstances, to challenge the, the factual record that comes up to the court, certainly to the Supreme Court. So you see you have this story, and it's a vivid little story about a crime. Um, the police officers, they get a report. There's a weapons disturbance. I take it that's a very serious crime. Shots have been fired, they're told. And so they rush off to uh, Lawrence's house, go running in, and discover the two men um, having sex. And so they are then charged with this deviant sexual intercourse crime. And one thing to remark here is that the definition of sodomy might be somewhat broader or different from what you think. So sodomy, or the so-called deviant sexual intercourse, applies to oral and anal sex. And also, you can see there's this penetration provision as well. So that's the definition of sodomy. It's oral or anal sex. And then the question becomes, 
who does the statute apply to, which persons are covered by the prohibition, and under the Texas statute, uh, the sodomy prohibition applies only to homosexual people. In Bowers versus Hardwick, the sodomy prohibition applied to everybody, um, straight as well as gay. So you want to be clear that the word sodomy doesn't automatically indicate this is a prohibition against gay people. It, instead, it's a description of certain kinds of sex you can't have. And then in Texas, as for the Lawrence uh, uh, case illustrates, that statute singled out gay people. Gay, only gay people are forbidden to have um, this, this kind of sex. Um, so we have this um, factual description. And then, of course, you're given a quick tour of the proceedings below. They're arrested. They're convicted. They get a trial de novo. They're convicted again. They then appeal their conviction up through the Texas courts. And the Texas courts affirm their convictions all along the way. And that, of course, ultimately tees up the case for the United States Supreme Court, which, lo and behold, grants certiorari and decides to take the case. So when the case is coming up to the court, there are a number of sort of powerful constraints operating in the background, or really the foreground of the case, that I want to highlight for you. And so, I mean, when the case came up, we're just like going, whoa. You know, the Supreme Court had just decided Bowers versus Hardwick in 1986. And again, were you on the planet then? No. So, so for you, that's really long in the tooth, right? But 1986 to 2003 is like really quick in, in litigation time, right? Certainly in Supreme Court time. It's just really, really swift. So, oh my goodness, they've granted this case. What are they up to? What are they thinking? Um, when the case go, uh, when the court grants cert, I think many of us were predicting, certainly this was the view that I took, that Justice O'Connor's equal protection rationale would likely be the one that would prevail if the petitioners were going to win. Um, but, 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 you know, that, that, was, that was up for grabs, and, and, and we'll get there in a minute. But one of the things that Justice Thomas, so first let's look at Justice Thomas's decision, which is the very last um, dissenting opinion. It's the very, very last page of the little handout. Um, so his decision is really important because he reminds us of two of the constraints that the court is facing. And these are constraints that, of course, make it difficult for the petitioners to win. Um, the first is what I would call separation of powers, right? the distinction between legislators and judges. And he says, look, this is a silly law. This is an uncommonly silly law. It is silly for the state to waste its precious resources on investigating and incarcerating people for this crime. It's very silly. If I were a member of the Texas legislature, I would vote to repeal it. But I'm a judge, right? And that's one thing, again, this goes back to a thread that I mentioned earlier. Typically, the decision about what counts as a crime, that's for legislators. It's not for judges in our country. And you can see why that would be. Um, the criminalization decision does entail an enormous 
uh, uh, dedication of resources to solving a problem, um, punishing people by incarceration, an incredibly serious um, decision to make. And that's something that you want to be made, a decision you want to be made by the representative body typically. You don't want the judges to be you know, in, the, in these small groups deciding. You want the community as a whole to be through the legislature making these decisions in a politically responsible way. So that's the first thing. It's very, very rare for judges to weigh in. The law can be as stupid or as, just as Thomas says, as silly as you like. That's not a ground for a judge to rebuff it. You have to find some other reason. And then, of course, he points to what I would call federalism concerns. Um, it's not just that Justice Thomas is a judge, not a legislator. It's that he's a federal judge. And again, criminal law is an area in which we typically have given the states the ability to make their own decisions. Crime is a matter of the 50 states' judgment. And it's very, very rare to see the federal government stepping in through its unelected judges and telling states, nope, you can't do this. So he thinks there's a very high bar um, for him in this case. And so therefore he says, you know, I just can't, I just don't see it and I'm not gonna go there. One thing that I wanna ask you though is, why did he join Justice Scalia's dissent? And I'm asking you that so that you can start thinking about the tone of these decisions. In other words, Justice Thomas says, this is an uncommonly silly law. This is a silly law. I would repeal it. Does Justice Scalia think it's a silly law? No. Tone-wise? No. no, not so, clearly not, clearly not, clearly not. Quite, quite, I mean, he certainly says this is something that, about which politicians could disagree. Right? There's no question that he believes that if we leave it to the political process, he acknowledges we're going to see some distinctions being drawn. But he himself defends the law or speaks of the law in a way that suggests that he doesn't believe it's silly. And so one thing that was always striking to me about Justice Thomas's decision was I thought that that little elegant dissent that he wrote, if I had been clerking for him, I would have said, Mr. Justice, just leave it at that. You know, just, you nailed it. Good job. You don't need to then join this decision, this, this other opinion with its, you know, its wonderful rhetoric. It's really fun to read. Um, but you just might not want to be signing on to um, all of that, 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 that agenda and tone. So there's Justice Thomas. Um, this is for legislators, not judges, and particularly federalism concerns. We have no business telling the states um, what their criminal prohibition should look like. So I want to do now is to move from there, and I'm hoping that we can start talking now, that, that maybe some of you who have read the case will be willing to start talking. Um, oh, I won't cold call unless you want it, right? And we can talk about cold calling after the camera goes off. Um, so Justice O'Connor's opinion. As I said, when the case goes up, a lot of court watchers thought, and it's very sensible, conclusion that the court might take the route that O'Connor endorses, which is the equal protection route. And so what she says is that she does not, no, she does not join the court's opinion. She does not agree 
with the due process analysis, or more precisely, she says, we don't need to reach it, right? There is no need for us to reach it. And for prudential reasons, we shouldn't reach it. We should be deciding cases as narrowly as possible. And we just don't need to go that far. And that's because the court can go ahead and invalidate the Texas statute without overruling Bowers versus Hardwick, right? And notice, she said, I was on the court when Bowers was decided. And I will, I'm not going to vote to overrule it. And that's very common. You know, it's when the courts, uh, it does decide to overrule cases, but the justices themselves who join decisions are particularly loath later to say, we made a mistake, or times have changed, or whatever it is they say. Um, but there's something to be said for her opinion, because she concludes this statute is an equal protection problem. And she says, we don't need to go farther than that. You can immediately see what the equal protection issue is, right? The notion is that the equal protection clause, it's been construed to mean that certain forms of discrimination, certain forms of state discrimination are forbidden. And we know, um, this is a point that we all know from just being raised in our culture, that the primary evil discrimination that the 14th Amendment is directed to ameliorate or eliminate is race discrimination. So the states are forbidden to discriminate because of race. And that's the core meaning of the Equal Protection Clause. Um, but the court has also concluded that the Equal Protection Clause has more bite, that it extends to some other forms of discrimination, including discrimination because of sex, and then every so often other kinds of discrimination as well. Now, it's here that the, the analysis gets extremely complicated, and we're going to paint with a fairly broad brush. But you can see what she, her point is, right? So she says the classification, gay people can't have sodomy, straight people can. That's discrimination by the state. And the state has to justify it. The state has to come up with a rational basis let's just say a darn good reason, right, uh, for why it's doing this. Why is it discriminating in this way? And so my first question for you is, what was the state's argument for why it was doing this? What is the basis for saying, straight people, you want to have sodomy, go for it. Gay people, not so much. Yes? Moral disapproval. Is there any other argument they could have made? Or what are the arguments that you imagine that they might have made, thinking about the time of Bowers versus Hardwick? Yes? There were arguments made in historical, like looking at tradition. Yes, but that's all a moral argument still. So the morality is just, you know, it's immoral, it's always been immoral, it's always been immoral, it's always been immoral. So you're right. So the tradition arguments are part of the morality argument. So I'm looking for something else. Sir? Could it be health-related? Yeah. Like the AIDS epidemic? Exactly. So that's one thing that you want to notice here is she's right. The state of Texas said, we rest this criminalization decision on morality. 
They did not try to make any kind of third-party harm argument. And you're right, the one that was obvious at the time of Bowers versus Hardwick was AIDS, very serious STD, right? And so if you were to be reading the briefs and the, the commentary around Bowers versus Hardwick, the, 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 the state's rationale didn't rest purely on morality. It rested partly on morality and arguments about sin, but it also rested heavily on a public health argument. And that argument has completely fallen away by 2003, at least to the extent that the state of Texas is not willing to stand on its feet in front of the United States Supreme Court and try to defend it. Um, so whether there was another argument they could have made, you know, that's neither here nor there. The state doesn't advance it. So again, you've got this classification. It's got to rest on a darn good reason. Let's call it a rational basis. And the state says our reason is morality. Now why for O'Connor is that argument either not enough or wrong-headed, spurious, whatever you think she is saying. Yes? She's saying it's a criminal law, but they're not using it to stop criminal behavior. It's like, right. we just don't like it, so we don't want you to do it. Yeah. Yes, sir? And, um, she's basically suggesting that the behavior itself isn't the problem, but by choosing a behavior to criminalize that's so directly tied with an identity, it's yep. Yep, so what she's saying, and, and you'll notice, of course, that Justice Scalia has a good bit to say about this, right? And that's an, an issue that we could talk about if you're willing to stay for another 45 minutes. Um, is, you know, what exactly is the state allowed to do, or strike that, what is the state disallowed to do by this decision, her rationale or the others? But you're exactly right, between the two of you, the state is saying we want to criminalize behavior and one thing, it, one, one of her main points is, but you're not using it that way. You very rarely enforce it, at least that's what the Texas Solicitor General said before the United States Supreme Court, we're not enforcing it. And at that point was, well if you're not enforcing it, it doesn't look like you really have an interest in using this criminalization tool against behavior. All it is is a statement of expression, expressive value, hostility, animosity, hatred for this particular group of people. And that kind of statement alone, that kind of animosity alone does not constitute a rational basis. So one thing for you to think about, and you can see the glimmers of this a little bit in Kennedy's opinion, is you know, what would count and what should count? Because clearly criminal laws do rest on morality, not always. Wait till you get to law school and start looking at the numbers of crimes out there. Um, many, many of them are silly and don't seem to rest on a moral basis, but the ones that we care about most deeply do rest on morality. So one question, of course, is what is this opinion saying about our ability to make moral judgments? And that's really, really difficult and interesting, um, highlighted in a fairly flamboyant way by Justice Scalia, who says, well, what about masturbation? 
What about bestiality? What about all those other things, adult incest and adultery and fornication and all those things that we punish? Can we continue to punish those? And of course, at this point, I'm hoping that you're thinking, masturbation? Do we really pun? No, 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 no. There, I don't know where that he got that from, right? <laughs> but some of the things on his list, we do continue to punish, right? And I take it, we, we will continue to punish them, um, notwithstanding this decision. So anyway, Justice O'Connor, equal protection violation. There's a classification. Um, and it doesn't rest on a rational basis. All it is is a statement of hatred for people and an invitation for others to discriminate against them. Even if they're not being prosecuted, it is a signal to landlords and employers and other important institutions, schools. These people are criminals. You do not need to rent houses to them. You do not need to hire them. You should not, right? That's what we do. We avoid criminals. So that's her fix. And here's the next question. Why is she confident that her narrower ruling will solve the problem? That's the big conundrum here, or one thing that you want to be sure you pick out. Why does she, she says, yep, I'm taking a narrower ground, but no worries. I think it's going to work. No, but you're on to it. You, 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 don't worry about the phrasing. Um, so yeah. she's, she's basically saying that um, if it would affect a, a particular people or affect a class, it would not um, be let allowed. Like, it would, wouldn't. <laughs> no, no, let's just go with what you said and, and constitute ourselves as the Texas legislature, right? Because you're exactly right. What she's saying is, look, my fix is narrower, but I believe that following this decision, the political process will do the right thing exactly for the reasons that you just alluded to. A majority of the people are not going to be willing to endorse one of the fixes. So there's the question. Okay. So ah, when, yeah, I know, it's always fun when the professor falls down in class. Um, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't tell this story on tape, but when I was in law school, our favorite one of those was a professor who put his foot in a garbage can and couldn't get it out. And don't ask me why he did that. There was a garbage can. He kept like doing this with his leg. And his foot went down in the garbage can. And then he couldn't get it out. And we were all just like, oh. <laughs> And of course, now I'm like, how could I have been so cruel? You know, if that happened to me, I would die. Um, oh. So oh, what's the remedy once a court decides that the equal protection has been violated, equal protection clause has been violated, what options are open to the state? Obviously, the remedy in this case is this statute violated the Equal Protection Clause. These two men, Lawrence and Garner, conviction has to be washed out. But I'm asking that it's going to come back to us. We're the, the Texas legislature, and we're sitting there going, no. You know, our deviant sexual intercourse statute just got invalidated. What should we do? Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, I'm so sorry. I don't know your names. Oh, Marina. Marina. So it sounds like there's two options. They can either make the law equal by including uh, not homosexuals as part of it. Right. Heterosexual couples. Or they can 
Exactly. There's two ways to fix the problem. In other words, they've got to get rid of the classification. And one way they can get rid of the classification is just say, okay, get rid of the law. Everyone is allowed to engage in this activity, right? Or they can revise the statute so that it applies to straight as well as gay. And she says, what? And this goes back to, I don't know your name. Yeah. This goes back to your point. What does she say is going to happen? We're sitting here, we're deliberating, we're going, hmm, which of these do we want to do? Uh, get rid of the law, apply the law to everybody. Right, we're, we're sitting here going, huh, hmm. Not sure what I'm going home to do tonight, but I, sh <laughs> I, sure, I sure don't want anybody telling me. You know, like, you know, I absolutely don't want anyone telling me that I can't have my sodomy, right? And so, so that's, what she's, that's what she's counting on, that when you take this law that's a dis discriminatory law and you require that it be applied to everybody, that was your point. You got it. You totally nailed it. And so that's what she's assuming. Now, why doesn't... The majority go along with that. Does Kennedy have anything to say on that front? I mean, I, I guess the quick answer is he just doesn't buy it, right? He's afraid that they might go ahead and leave the law in the books and it would just continue to be a statement of you know, hatred or that they would go ahead and they would pass the law so that it applied to everyone, but it would continue to be to be implemented in a discriminatory fashion. So, so that's the O'Connor opinion. She's got this equal protection argument that I think is quite convincing. Um, and she says the political process will fix it. And the majority decides, nope, we need to go for a broader holding. So then they turn to the due process. According to Justice Scalia, what is the function of the due process clause? And again, you would know this conversation going into this decision, and that's why I want to start there. Um, what does he say? So, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Yeah. No state merely can deprive a person of these things, but there must be some kind of legal process, like going through a court of law or a legislature makes a statute. Right. We call it procedural due process. Exactly. Exactly. So what he's saying exactly that is, look, this provision, the, the due process clause, doesn't guarantee liberty. In, all it does is to tell you that if you're going to take it away, no state shall deprive people of liberty without giving them due process. Right? without giving them fair procedures. And again, welcome to the world of law. Don't you love the language due process? What does that mean? It'll drive you mad until you realize it's going to be highly contextual and don't worry about it, right? Um, <laughs> it means what process is due. Like, good, there you go. You can take that home and put it in the bank. So when it comes to a criminal trial, what process is due? A lot of process, right? So before you take someone's liberty away and put them in jail or fine them, 
you're, we're going to give them a lot of process. We're going to be sure that the police followed fair procedures. We're going to be sure that you have a trial, that you have right to counsel, that you have rights to appeal, and all of those kinds of things, right? What he's saying is, look, these defendants got that. They were given all the process in the world that's required in a criminal case or that's due in a criminal case. And so he doesn't see any additional work that the Due Process Clause has to do here. Now, notice, this is the word that Justice Kennedy, liberty, starts the opinion with. And that's really an important move. And you wouldn't know that unless you've been part of the conversation. But what he wants to do is to shift the focus from the idea that liberty is something within the meaning of this clause that the states can take away as long as they give you due process. He wants to come up with some more robust definition of liberty. So notice he starts his opinion with the word liberty. You know, liberty means this, liberty means that. And so it's really clear that's what he's doing. He's explicating for us the meaning of the word liberty. And what does he end up concluding? And I want, I'm looking for something narrow as opposed to this clause only dictating the necessary procedures if the state decides to take away your liberty, throw you in jail is a good example of that, then they have to follow certain fair processes. They have to give you a notice, they have to give you a hearing. He wants to say, wait a minute, nope, the provision has a additional meaning. Yeah. The right to engage in a type of conduct without intervention from the government? Yes. And so Stated more ex abstractly, what is that kind of due process? Oh, I was going to say autonomy of self. To no, no, no. I'm looking for the term of art. Substantive due, Substantive due process. So there are two kinds of due process. Procedural, right? Before the state can take things away from you, they've got to give you procedures. But then the Supreme Court also, over the years, has developed a set of cases that recognize that liberty has a substantive component. Does Justice Scalia reject the idea that liberty has a substantive component? No, he says that um, the due process clause, excuse me, uh, substantive due process uh, holds that the due process clause prohibits states from infringing fundamental liberty interests unless there's a narrowly tailored Right. Right. So Scalia acknowledges. So notice, you know, he's clearly hostile to the decision in Lawrence, but he doesn't deny that there is a line of cases that recognize substantive due process. And he says what's required is that you identify a fundamental liberty interest. Okay? But first, what does substantive due process mean? Substantive 
if you have a substantive due process right, what does that mean? I don't, I don't, I, I don't want the language about its autonomy of the self, because Scalia, you know what he would do with that. He'd just go, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> sorry, and I, I, I yeah. I, I take it to mean that the law is not so unreasonable on its face that a, any process you could go through would be, would be not right. Well, so, so say that again. The, the, where you began, I didn't, I was shaking my head going, uh-uh. But then by the end, I think, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so what there, were you? There can't, there can't be a reasonable process. Exactly. There's some stuff, call it intimate human conduct or something. There's some stuff that, notice, goes beyond thought. It's not just freedom of thought or freedom of expression. There's some stuff, let's call it conduct, that is protected by that word liberty. The word liberty encompasses some stuff that the state can't take it away from you or regulate it, no matter how reasonable the process is, right? So no matter how much process they give, they cannot take away from you this substantive activity. And of course you can imagine, right? Wow, what are the contours of that? what exactly is the substance of liberty that's protected. So Scalia says, okay, all right, he acknowledges there is a substantive due process right, and he says it's fundamental liberty interests. Where do you look to find those fundamental liberty interests according to him? No? Bill of Rights would be a great place to look, but of course, you don't necessarily, you've already got him in the Bill of Rights, right? So you, you've already got free speech, you've got, so he's gonna go, he's gonna say you have, you know, constitutional protections to those independently. I wanna know the ones that aren't enumerated. Yes? Deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions. Deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. And it's here that we're getting to the key methodological point. The, the methodological difference that divides Scalia from the majority. Deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, so what are you gonna look for? What kind of evidence are you gonna look for to say to yourself, yep, I've got, a, I've got one. This is a fundamental liberty interest that's covered by substantive due process. You talked about the Bill of Rights, but also other laws that were written at the time of the founding, like an intent. Perfect, you're gonna look at the understanding of the framers, of the meaning of that word at the time, and you're going to look at other laws that were in extant at that time. And when he looks back at that history, what does he see? He sees that um, at the time that founding laws were not something that the founders would do completely against. <laughs> exactly. What he says is, you know, look, Based on my methodology, which requires me to construe the language of this text according to the meanings that the framers would have had in mind, the historical understandings that they would have endorsed, I'm sorry, there's just absolutely no way that they would have believed that you had a liberty interest in sodomy. What he sees is a very, very, very powerful web of regulations. Most sexual relations are criminal at that time. So he just thinks this is nonsensical. So notice, 
That's his methodology. You're going to read this language by reference to some kind of original understanding, maybe not original intent. He doesn't care about what's in the head of the framer so much as what the understandings were at the time. And he says if we go beyond that, we're no longer acting as judges, we're just legislating our own policy. And as he says, go to the democratic process, go to the state legislators, get them to change the meaning of this language. So now I'm going to keep you at least two minutes late, and you can complain all you like, um, but you shall not leave this room. Um, <laughs> what I want to know is, what is the competing methodology that Justice Kennedy uses? And so just to be clear, you can tell they look at different sources, right? Kennedy looks not at the understandings of the framers. He looks at the contraception cases. He looks at the abortion cases. He looks at what those crazy Europeans are doing, you know, um, the French fads. Um, he looks at the model penal code. He looks at what the states have done in the last couple of decades. So note, what you want to notice is that the choice of methodology means you're looking at very different sources, right, to inform your decision. What does this mean? Um, so I'm not looking for what is his sources, but what's the methodology that he endorses? Can you, can you identify that critical paragraph? Yeah. Mm -mm. That would be more Scalia. Scalia is more textualism, and I think that we're, well, or, or, or let me be, 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 be clearer. I, I think they both believe they're explicating this text, right? But they're using different ways of doing it, and the, the methodology that he's using wouldn't fall under the textualism. But I'm not asking you to pluck things out of your heads. I want the language of the opinion. And this is what your professors are going to do if they're good professors. They're going to say, look, you read this text. The answer is in here. Um, I know I sound like I don't know what I'm talking about, but it's in here. Yeah. Could you, could you read the whole paragraph and read it really loud? And that way everyone can leave. <laughs> Have those who drew and ratified the due process clauses of the Fifth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment known the component, components of liberty and its manifold possibilities, they, may, they might have been more specific. They did not presume to have this insight. They knew times can blind us to certain truths, and later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper in fact serve only to oppress. As the Constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. That's it exactly. So what he is saying is, I'm explicating this text. I, I have a methodology. I'm not pulling it out of thin air. I'm not telling you what I, Justice Kennedy, prefer or you know, some, some, some odd idiosyncratic preference. He points to very well-established sources. And he says, I get to point to these more modern, contemporary sources because the framers intended for us to take an approach, sort of a living constitution approach or a, a, a flexible approach. We have these abstract words, life, liberty, property, 
and they're meant to put in place these enduring principles, these enduring commitments with room for each generation to develop its own ideas of evolving standards of decency, equality, fairness, and so forth. So that's where you're going to come into the debate in law school. That's the big deal. And you can see that a justice like Justice Kennedy, who is, you know, middle of the road. He's not your sort of crazy radical guy. Um, he's adopting this flexible approach to these words that give him space, right, to incorporate more contemporary understandings of the word liberty as a matter of constitutional law and not just a matter for legislation. So thank you for staying a little bit late. It's been a real joy to meet you all, and I hope to see you here in the fall. Thank you. Thank you.